Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Giorgio Vallor-Chigara about his new book, Born Knowing, Imprinting and the Origins of Knowledge. Why do newborns show a preference for a face or something that resembles a face over a non-face-like object? Why do baby chicks prefer a moving object to an inanimate one? Neither baby human nor baby chick has had time to learn to, uh, to like faces or movement. In Born Knowing, neuroscientist Giorgio Valortigara argues that the mind is not a blank state. Early behavior is biologically predisposed rather than learned, and this instinctive or innate behavior, Valortigara says, says is key to understanding the origins of knowledge. Well, Giorgio, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's great to have you. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the global, global pandemic recently and are still quite amidst of it, really, I was wondering if you could just reflect on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered. Well, not very much, uh, luckily, because uh, we mainly work with animal models. I mean, the professional part of my life. Uh, so we were able to continue working in the lab with just uh, uh, some limited restrictions, uh, such as, for instance, uh, the number of people allowed to enter in each laboratory room or things like that. But here in the north of Italy, apart from the uh, relatively short period of complete lockdown in which we were forced to stay at home, for the rest, the life was, well, pretty normal with respect to the professional part, obviously very limited with respect to the social one. So as you have mentioned, you work with animal models. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background and yourself? Uh, yes, I, I started my career basically as an ethologist and uh, uh, a behavioral biologist, mainly working with uh, behavior. Uh, and then uh, I moved slowly towards looking at what is in uh, the uh, black box into the brain. And so uh, I became more and more interested in behavioral neuroscience and in the uh, combining of uh, behavioral work with uh, um, a variety of techniques to explore what is in the brain. And in particular, uh, 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 working with very young, newly hatched chicks, and more recently also with uh, honeybees, uh, zebra, fish, and a variety of other uh, little creatures. Were you always interested in in biology, or did you make that choice uh, uh, because you got inspired? Oh, well, no. When I, uh, it was the time as a young man to decide what topic to select at the university. I was very confused, actually, uh, because there was a, several things that were interesting to me. 
very heterogeneous. For instance, uh, I was interested in uh, mathematical logic, but also in psychotherapy, but also in ethology, but also in anthropology. So very, very confused. And at the end, what the side was, as it happens at that age, the reading of a book, uh, uh, the uh, behind the mirror of the ethologist Conrad Lawrence, and this book impressed me very much because all my interests were related in some way with one single and specific topic, namely the topic of the origin of knowledge. How is it possible? that biological organism uh, obtain uh, uh, knowledge, cognition of the world. And so reading the, the Lawrence book, I realized that behavioral biology could be the key to the mind, the way in which we can, in some sense, uh, satisfy my very general and philosophical questions uh, with uh, a naturalistic approach. A naturalistic, I mean, with the methods of natural sciences. So all my work after that was actually uh, related to this specific issue. What is in the mind of biological creatures at the start, at the onset of life? These are fascinating questions to ask. So what roles did maybe mentors play along your career journey? And would you have any advice to our younger listeners, uh, like students and early career researchers? Well, uh, uh, as it happens, obviously, several senior colleagues affected in some way my way of thinking and uh, in some way provide advice. Apart from the one that I never met personally, uh, unfortunately, like Conrad Lawrence, there was uh, uh, some, well, my mentor, first of all, that were uh, quite exceptional in their ability to give me freedom to pursue my scientific interest. That was true for my mentor in Padua, uh, Mario Zemferling, and then for my mentor at Sussex University, when I moved in UK, Richard Andrew, and also they gave me the opportunity to be introduced to the use of a little model that provided by newly hatched chicks that was in a way the model of my life and also the, uh, the main uh, character of my book. Uh, the the young of, of the domestic chicks. But several others were important. For instance, uh, uh, one of the father of cybernetics, and he was also a neuroanatomics, Valentin Breitenberg, was also very important in shaping my, uh, my, my, my career, my scientific uh, path. So then you bring all of your uh, really deep expertise on the topic also together with your passion to uh, for uh, for these really fascinating questions that you ask in your recent book, Born Knowing. So what is it about and how did you come to writing it? Well, basically, I was interested to convey to a, a, a general audience, not to a public of specialists in behavioral biology and in comparative neuroscience, the kind of work 
that I did in the last 30 years, uh, myself, but also obviously my colleagues, uh, because it seemed to me that they, this research provides some new insight about an old question, namely the natural nurture issue and the problem I mentioned before, namely what is in into uh, a mind at the onset of life before any experience uh, would shape uh, knowledge. So um, the, the, the point here is that, you know, uh, biochemist John Krebs once said that for any kind of uh, biological problems, uh, God has invented a specific animal model uh, for the joy, for the satisfaction of biologists. So I believe that with respect to the problem of the origins of knowledge, uh, the young of the domestic chick, or in general the, the, the young of the precocial species, are the ideal models, are the god animals, as would uh, uh, Krebs uh, uh, said. Why? Well, because they provide us uh, with a unique possibility namely to have an organism which is uh, virtually deprived of an, any kind of experience because it's just newly hatched. And so we have a precise control on uh, his, its experience, even in ovo, in embryo. And at the same time, being a precocial species, uh, it is able to behave. It is able to perform a variety of different behaviors. Imprinting is a, is a prominent example by which we can investigate its mind. This is something that is extremely difficult or impossible with precocial species. So, for instance, why not studying, say, young kittens or young rats or young human neonates? Part of my work is actually done with human neonates. Well, the problem is that all these species are altricial, as we said uh, in biology. That is, they are slowly developing. So soon after birth, they are mostly inept. They are not able to do uh, a lot of things because from the sensory and the motoric point of view, they are not very mature. Obviously, you can say, well, you can maintain say, a young rat in the dark until without uh, stimulation, until he is mature enough to perform behavioral tasks. But this doesn't work because, obviously, if you deprive the animals of sensory input during these critical periods, you don't, do not have a normal, a physiological animal. Precultural species are perfect because most of the motoric and sensory maturation in a young chick, so pouring ovo in embryo. So when it is uh, hatched, he is behaving like a little adult, but at the same time, you have a perfect control on its past experience. So in the last 30 years, I did a lot of work on cognition in newly hatched chicks and tried to parallel it with similar evidence, uh, limited obviously and without brain work, in human neonates to see parallels, but more than parallels, general principles underlying the developing of a mind, uh, letting we say, statunashen.
at the onset of life. So this approach that you employ is called comparative evolutionary approach, isn't it? It is comparative in the sense, obviously, that we make use of models that could be also very different from our species, from phylogenetic point of view. And in fact, more than 300 million years ago, dates back the common ancestor of uh, avian and uh, 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 mammalian species. But the point, as I said, is that we are looking in general for, for general principles, that is, for the general mechanisms that we expect to be valid and to be true for animals irrespective of their phylogenetic distance. That's an important point because people think that the choice of an animal model in biology is mainly related to how much a particular species is uh, related to us genetically, for instance, or in terms of natural history, which is more or less less the same. But this is wrong. The choice of an animal model in science is not motivated by phylogenetic distance. It's motivated by the nature of the problem you are uh, going to investigate. And this is true, obviously, and it is easy to understand it for other branch of sciences. For instance, in genetics, people is ready to accept that fruit flies have been a model for the development of genetics, even if fruit flies are obviously very distantly related to humans. Uh, in the case of the mind and the brain and the brain processes, this is uh, in some way more difficult to accept. But the principle is still valid. If you are interested in the origins of knowledge, it is not a good idea to study, say, chimpanzees or cats, for instance, because you cannot address the kind of problem uh, which are associated with this issue. And we move instead to the use of precautious species in such a way to have that sort of control on experience to see uh, a mind at the blank state, which is not blank, actually. Oh, that's a really great clarification. Uh, that makes it so much easier now to understand why you, you use specific models and why you can branch out to using like chickens like you do, for example. So what is meant by nature and nurture and how we should really wrap our head around it? Well, it means that if you look at the uh, behavior of an organism and how it has been shaped, you can say that it can be shaped by, uh, to say, two sort of memories, in a sense, or two sort of uh, learning process that occur with different uh, time scale. One is the time scale of uh, ontogenetic development, that is, after hatching or even in embryo or in ovo, there are stimuli impinging and mechanisms by which the organism can learn. And therefore, then they can acquire knowledge on the basis of learning during individual development. But on the other hand, it seems unlikely that you can imagine that organisms acquire knowledge in this way, as tabula rasa. Uh, there should be some other which is still memory, but on a long 
uh, on a long time. That is the sort of information which has been embedded into the nervous system, into the genome actually, uh, during natural history as a result of natural selection. And this is biological memory, and this is the sort of information which is encoded into our genes, which is before any actual learning is occurring. Uh, so obviously, the behavior of any kind of creature is shaped by both and by, and by the interaction of this genetic, environmental, epigenetic mechanisms. But what I am interested in particular is not how the different aspects, uh, these different aspects uh, affect behavior. I am rather interested in the origins of information that organisms might possess, specific information. What is their origin? Is that an origin related to phylogenetic history or it is an origin related to ontogenetic history? That is, is learned or is rather, as they would say in, in the past, inborn? innate in born innate here it means simply genetically coded these are definitely very interesting questions so can you describe how would you go about to answering them so what kind of experiments would you perform well um the first part of the book is mainly related to what we could um um uh, classify as investigation about social mechanisms or mechanism related to um, social life. And we make use here of imprinting and predispositions for imprinting. Um, at the time of Conrad Lawrence, uh, the prevalent idea was that, well, you know what is imprinting, is the learning process by which the young of some animal species like the domestic chicks or ducklings, uh, after a brief exposure to a stimulus, uh, learn to recognize that stimulus as a mother, as a social partner. And they develop a strong social attachment to the object. But what is interesting to us is also that they develop a, a recognition memory of the object. And the traditional view was that imprinting was possible with any kind of stimulus, artificial or naturalistic, whatever. And in fact, people that read the classical King's Salomon book of Conrad Lawrence would remember probably the goose Martin that was imprinted on the shoes of Conrad Lawrence. Well, that's true in principle that animals could imprint on artificial stimuli, but in fact, what we found is that there are predispositions, biological predispositions that make young chicks more likely to imprint on some kind of stimuli rather than others. And this kind of stimuli uh, define in general terms the class of what we could describe as animate objects versus against, in contrast, with non-animate objects. And in this sense, they are a sort of guide or mechanism to canalize imprinting. So 
Consider some example. When you are out of from the egg, obviously there are a lot of king, a lot of things that move around in the world, and so uh, the problem is how to prevent that a chick is imprinting, say, on a leaf moved by the wind, for instance, rather than by by a broody hand or by a rolling stone or whatever. Well, it is. Uh, apparent uh, from research carried out in the last 20 years, more or less, that chicks have predisposition to attend, to pay attention to particular kind of movement. For instance, biological movement, which is the typical movement of uh, animated creatures. Or, for instance, they attend to movement characterized by uh, quick changes of speed. Again, this is a characteristic rapid acceleration and deceleration that you can observe usually in animated creatures. Sometimes also in non-animated, but it is interesting. When at the periphery of your visual field, you see quickly a leaf moved by the wind, you turn rapidly and you say, oh, he's seen leaving. And that is exactly the point. There seems to be mechanism by which we recognize living things. And there seems to be predispositions for that. Not just motion, but also, for instance, uh, uh, stationary still stimuli. For instance, soon after hatching, young chicks, but also human newborns, are terribly attracted by sort of simplified face-like schema, which is simply composed by an outline, circular outline, and inside there are three blocks arranged in the shape of an inverted triangle. So basically two eyes and one mouth and a beak. And this very simple stimulus is a sort of platonic face. It seems, uh, in etological terms, something like a, a... super stimulus that attract the attention of a variety of creatures, not yet just young chicks, but also monkeys, also human neonates, and so on and so on. So we make use of these uh, biological predispositions. First, we describe them behaviorally, and then we use them to, to try to explore what is going into the brain that can explain this sort of dispositions. So this is quite possible with chicks. Use a variety of techniques. Uh, for instance, we uh, expose chicks to stimuli that could convey or cannot convey the typical features of an, of an animated creature. So for instance, imagine a face-like stimulus and an inverted face. So again, the triangle, uh, of blobs, which is, however, uh, upside down, so in the canonical shape. So the stimulation from the physical point of view is exactly the same, but obviously the biological meaning is extremely different. So we use a technique which is early gene expression to look at which areas in the brain would be activated in a specific way as a result of the stimulation with the face-like rather than the non-face life, or with the biological motion with respect to the non-biological, or with stimuli that move with changes of speed with respect to stimuli moving with uh, uh, homogeneous uh, uh, speed, velocity.
And so we were able to identify a series of brain regions which are specifically involved with that. And then we do parallel work with human neonates. Part of my lab is in the local hospital here. Uh, and we have a room with uh, access to human newborns, obviously with permission and agreement of the parents. And we show these human newborns few hours old the same stimuli that we develop with our young chicks, face-like stimuli, biological motion, stimuli with changes of speed and so on, or, for instance, self-propelled movement, which is a classical key to recognize living things. That was an idea that dates back to Aristotle. And we also are able to do some brain work, non-invasive, obviously, with human neonates using electroencephalography and uh, functional, uh, uh, functional um, nears, near infrared spectroscopy. So we do, we do this parallel work with uh, 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 the animal model and with human newborns. And, and we also believe this work is interesting, not just only for the fundamental science aspect, but also has some translational value. Why? Well, because this mechanism for recognition of living things to tell apart animate and non-animate objects is, in a sense, the starting point for the building up of a social brain. So a few years ago, we wondered whether if, for some reason, for instance, genetic reasons, these basic mechanisms for recognition of animate and non-animate objects would fail, would be not operative in young organisms, what would be the consequence? Well, one consequence could be neurodevelopmental disorders like, for instance, autism spectrum disorders. And so we try to exploit this idea and we investigate for a while um, human newborns which are at high risk for autism. And this is uh, described in the book. And these are uh, young uh, infants, young neonates that are uh, siblings of uh, individuals that have been already diagnosed as autistic. So the parents decide to have another uh, uh, progeny anyway. They know that it is risky. They have a high risk. Uh, and then uh, we have access to these uh, young infants all over Italy. We have a, a mobile lab to reach at home at about six days of age and do the same tests we develop for young chicks and for um, uh, neonates, human neonates at uh, ordinary usual development. And we found that indeed they have problems in recognition of these uh, animate, non-animate uh, stimuli, uh, perhaps not because they lack them, but probably because there is a delay in the development of this uh, uh, predisposed inborn mechanisms. Uh, yes, I was saying that this is the part that uh, is devoted to the investigation of, uh, of 
the social aspects of the mind. And then there is a second part of the book in which you use the same approach to investigate uh, knowledge of the physical world rather than of the social world, namely knowledge of objects, so permanence of objects, knowledge of number, how do young animals deal if they do in any way with the numerosity of collection of objects, how do they deal with uh, orientation in space, and uh, are they able to use geometric information of some sort to orient in space. And all this stuff is described in very short and easy to read, I hope, chapters, uh, always making use of the tool of imprinting and predisposition for imprinting. This part of the book has really struck me the most, and especially thinking about how you disentangle this intrinsic and newly acquired knowledge and uh, how you know which one is which. But also, how, how can the acquired knowledge be made into the intrinsic one? If, is that possible? Well, the idea is that uh, consider, for instance, uh, uh, numerosity number. We know that uh, before the development of symbolic knowledge of numbers, which is obviously a uniquely human characteristic, there seems to be something more primitive, more rudimental, but more basic, more foundational in a sense, which is called sense of number, or in technical terms, approximate number system. And this is a, a, a mechanism to estimate quantities of any kind, both discrete numerosities or also continuous. So, for instance, the number of dots on a computer screen or the number of imprinting objects. And obviously, the problem, the issue here is uh, what is needed in order to develop this sort of basic notion of number, of numerosity. Do you need some sort of experience with a different kind of numerosity? And do you need the experience and making, say, uh, arithmetic operation like subtraction and addition? So you see two objects, and then one object is disappearing, and then you realize that If there are two objects, one is disappearing, only one object would remain? Or is in some way all this stuff predisposed in the brain? Again, the use of animals of precautious species like chicks uh, could provide an answer to this this question. We found, for instance, that the ability to perform arithmetic operations addition, subtraction, ratio, is shown by very, very young chicks. And they do not need any specific training uh, to do that. They do not need to have specific experience with uh, appearance and disappearance or occlusion or disocclusion of objects. Uh, What they need probably is simply the experience of uh, segregated objects. Uh, When you have collection of entities, say, conspecifics, little dots, females, if you are adults, whatever, uh, 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 
Uh, and then you can segregate these as separate entities, separate objects. Then the notion, so to speak, of a numerosity associated with uh, collections of these entities is in some way prepared into the brain. It is something that we don't need to learn about. Uh, so I, I think this would be very, very fascinating for Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, who argued that in order to have knowledge and in order to make possible the role of experience, the role of learning, there should be in the brain at the start some sort of categorical knowledge which is already there. So space, time, number, causation are a priori in Kantian terms. And now we know, as Lawrence would say, that this a priori is in fact an a posteriori from the phylogenetic point of view. It is not a priori because God has put them uh, there, but it is a priori in the sense that it is the result of, uh, of information which has been encoded into evolutionary times into the genome, into the genes of, of, of the organisms. That is truly fascinating. So uh, some of the experiments that come to mind as well to test it. So can you, for example, remove a chick from its normal environment and put it into different environment where it doesn't have the external inputs to, say, teach it, and then check whether it's still uh, present all of this intrinsic uh, knowledge? Well, yes, but consider that in, in, in the kind of experiment I am describing, the amount of experience for chicks is very limited, and also the amount of uh, uh, contact with a specific environment. So typically, uh, consider an experiment with number is something like that. The chick is hatched in the dark, so it is in the incubator, completely in the dark. Then in the dark, in a small box, is placed in front of a computer screen. And this is the very first things that it looks like in the world. And in the computer screen, there are, for instance, uh, little dots which are changing in their numerosity, whereas the other physical characteristics change at random. So, for instance, five and 10 dots alternate continuously, whereas density, uh, overall area, contour perimeter, shapes of the single elements are continuously changed. So only numerosity 5, 10 is uh, constant, so to speak. And in another condition, checks for a similar setup. So in the dark, place in the dark for the very first time, to the stimuli are looking instead to stimuli in which there is no change in numerosity. So it is always five or always 10 and all other physical variables are changes, changing continuously. So what we are looking is whether there is an ability to discriminate between the two numerosity and if in the brain we can find sign of this discrimination using different techniques I'm not going to describe now. Uh, uh, following this very limited control experience of the world. After that, obviously, you are right. Uh, 
real life in a natural world would start. And when chicks uh, start to interact with conspecifics, start to interact with objects in the world, learning is taking place. And they can take a variety of new information, they can change their mind, they can uh, uh, mold, change, modify, shape their mind. But the interesting point from my uh, view, from my specific experience, is that this is not starting from nothing. Uh, it's not starting from a blank state. There is structure in the brain, and this structure at the onset is what it makes possible all the subsequent events, which are obviously terribly interesting, uh, but they are, the, <laughs> I'd say, the topic of, of other colleagues. So it's uh, really interesting to think that chicks playing video games inform us on such important issues. So I was wondering if you could share maybe your favorite uh, stories from your research and your experience in the field, something that uh, really it surprised you. Well, I think that every morning when I go to the lab and I uh, discuss with my uh, young collaborators, the results of the last series of experiments, and uh, I, I, will, I, I am always surprised any any time. Uh, but I think that one uh, uh, funny things that occurred to me years ago uh, is, is this one. Uh, 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 we usually, uh, as a routine, if there is no brain work involved for purely behavioral experiments. Uh, uh, the chicks are donated to local farmers uh, because they are pretty normal animals uh, that have been just imprinted on some strange uh, stimulus or things like that. And years ago, I had a student that has uh, an ankle with a little uh, um, farm, uh, and he was used to donate some of the chicks from the lab and he noticed that these chicks uh, range very high, typically the most high in the hierarchy, the so-called peck order. You know that these animals have a social organization, which is a linear uh, organization. There is an alpha dominant one, and then below all the other until the omega. And he was very surprised, the student, because he, he noticed that the chicks coming from the lab were always the alpha, the dominant ones. Uh, and I remember that the, the, the uh, uncle was an old farmer with a full of wisdom said, well, that's quite obvious. They do the university course. Uh, but in fact, the explanation was uh, uh, a little more mundane. We are uh, using so-called broiler chicks. We take the eggs, fertilize, and we uh, rear them, and we hatch them in control condition in the lab. And these uh, are eggs which has been subjected to a very strong genetic selection uh, in order to obtain broiler chicks that uh, would grow up very, very rapidly. Uh, so when adults, uh, they tend to be very, very big with respect to the more natural ones of the local farmer. 
that was the reason they were the alpha, the dominant. Yeah. <laughs> so from your years of experience in this field, so can you give us a bit of an insight from your perspective? Why are we so captivated by, by the brain itself? Why do we really so interest? Why, why are we really interested in studying it? Well, I, I use the same journalistic terms. It is the, the novel and the last frontiers, in a sense. Uh, it is quite interesting. I'm now quite a senior professor, and I can see the changes in the uh, kind of recruits that we have for this area of research. For instance, in the last years, uh, uh, here, for instance, in our center, which is quite an important neuroscience center in Europe, uh, a large number of uh, uh, new uh, students applying for a PhD positions, for instance, came from the so-called hard sciences. They are uh, physicists, computer scientists, mathematicians, uh, whereas, well, Obviously, most are biologists, psychologists, the traditional discipline. But there is this increasing number of these people. And this is not surprisingly, obviously, because of the, the study of the brain is now perceived as, as the extreme, the final frontier in research. And so brilliant people for any kind of scientific disciplines are attracted by brain science. So... Young physicists that, say, years ago would be more attracted by uh, particle physics or other fascinating things, now they think that brain could be uh, something more interesting to investigate. Consider that at the end, obviously, it, it is that object, the brain, that made possible also theoretical physics. And so this can explain the reason of this continuous and increasing fascination. Yes, for sure. So very high value of uh, your research, of course, is uh, the translational nature of it as well, as you have described a bit earlier, uh, like testing neonates uh, with a high risk of developing some neurodevelopmental disorders. So what other applications do you foresee for, for the future? Of course, we cannot predict the future, but what would you would like to see um, sort of more on the applied side of your research? Well, one um, uh, area of research we are um, devoted more time in the last years is related to uh, sensitive period associated with imprinting. And obviously, sensitive period is not only in for imprinting, there are a variety of other learning processes which are characterized by sensitive or critical periods. Uh, there are critical periods for the development of vision. There are critical periods for so-called absolute teach, uh, etc., etc. And uh, they, they, these are very interesting phenomena because consider, for instance, imprinting. Basically, during imprinting, a few hours after hatching. There is sort of opening of a window of extreme plasticity for the brain. Uh, the brain of the chick is ready uh, to modify, to be modified, but any kind or any kind, 
most of the stimuli, particularly some kind of stimuli that would appear into their visual field or into their acoustic field. There is also acoustic imprinting and so on. Uh, so a period of extraordinary plasticity of the brain. Uh, it is interesting and obviously would open terrific possibility if we were able to reopen critical periods in adulthood or at any time. Imagine uh, the possibility to have the equivalent of the brain when you were a young person, for instance. Consider language. We all know that learning of language is extremely difficult, apart from grammars, but in terms of phonetic and ascent, for instance, after about 11 years of age in humans. And this is probably associated with the critical period, sensitive periods for the acquisition of language. So we are investigating with some uh, Japanese colleagues, uh, most notably Toshiya Matsushima, who is mentioned in the book, some drugs that have been demonstrated to be able to uh, reopen the critical period for imprintings. So basically, if you wait up to about four days after hatching, imprinting is no longer possible or is no longer possible in an efficient way. Uh, but uh, if you administrate a, a, a hormone uh, a substance, which is called T3, uh, thyroid hormone, it is possible to uh, reopen the critical period and you can get imprinting in chicks at, say, six, seven, eight days of age. And that is extraordinary, fantastic, I think. And there is a lot of work going on about this issue of the reopening of a critical period and the possibility to rejuvenate a brain so, as you can imagine, I am more and more fascinated by this possibility uh, with progressing of my, my personal age. Uh, uh, I, I'm, of course, it is something which is absolutely very, very remotely related up to now with any possible real clinical application. But who knows? In the future, I'm pretty sure that this sort of research would make possible really to rejuvenate the brain or at least to uh, to face the, the, the terrible uh, problems associated with uh, uh, the neural degeneration uh, associated with pathology like Alzheimer or things like that. So that's that's I think is something that in the future uh, I would like to uh, to investigate more, more and more deeply. Excellent. So what discoveries, if any, along your journey to writing this book for knowing surprised you? Uh, I would say how easy it was to write the book <laughs> in the sense that it is sort of a story in, in, a, uh, in a very simplified and non-academic terms of what I did uh, for my research. Uh, 
and the other thing that I, I appreciate a lot was the interaction with the, the illustrator of the book, who is a very famous Italian artist, Claudia Losi. And the, the, the task for Claudia was not to provide uh, 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 images that would help teaching, didascalic stuff. I was not interested in that because I think that the experiments can be described and they are so simple that they do not require this. And I was not interested to put into the book uh, diagrams or other traditional academic stuff. I wanted to be readable by people that make other things. Uh, and Claudia provided a little piece of art uh, that was simply inspired by the, by the chapter. So I sent uh, step by step one little chapter, and the chapters are typically two pages or two pages and one half, describing a particular piece of uh, uh, research or ideas, a recognition of partly occluded objects. How could uh, chicks or young human newborns recognize a partly occluded objects? and to see it as uh, complete. And then she provides very nice drawing of it uh, on the basis of her understanding of what uh, was in the text. And so in a sense, I had direct, uh, how to say, confirmation or disconfirmation whether my writing was uh, clear enough. Excellent. So what outstanding questions about the mind still keep you awake at night? Well, uh, obviously the, the issue that is keeping uh, alert at night, most of neuroscientists, I think, and also most of philosophers and most of people that think about that, namely the issue of consciousness. Um, yeah, that's a, a, a very crucial issue. And it is also an issue that, in my view, is in some way distinct and separated from that of cognition that was the, the topic of this book. I, actually, I, I wrote recently a book on, on the origins, evolutionary origins, with some idea of consciousness in another book, which is unfortunately only in Italian, I hope. I will be able to make it to translate in English very soon. Uh, but in any case, uh, consciousness is interesting to me because uh, uh, it is apparent that be conscious is not equivalent to be clever or to be intelligent or to have cognition. We have plenty of evidence that a variety of complicated things of the sort that young chicks or fish or other creatures can perform or humans can perform uh, can be done in some particular condition for instance pathological condition is apparent in humans in the absence of consciousness so this raised the issue of the function of consciousness what is it for and obviously the origin of consciousness how it would make its appearance in the, in the history of, of biological life. I think these are really crucial, crucial questions. 
So then what is your verdict from all of the experience you have gathered with chicks? Can chickens do arithmetic? Hmm. Yeah, they can do arithmetic. They can do also, for instance, uh, uh, logic, uh, transitive inference. And recently, <laughs> this was too recent, it is not in the book, but I, I can mention it. Uh, it is just a submitted the paper. Uh, uh, we investigate uh, several years ago transitive inference. You know, transitive inference is the sort of uh, logic reasoning that we learn at the time of the lycée or the high school. Things like, if John is taller than Mary and Mary is taller than Jane, then you can deduce logically that John is taller than Jane. Well, that sort of stuff seems to be very, very complicated. And the idea is that it would be possible only in association with symbolic stuff, uh, how we do typically at school. But in fact, it is quite possible to teach, uh, to train uh, animals, nonverbal creatures, to perform the equivalent of these logical um, things. Uh, and they are quite good uh, uh, at, at making inference. And the reason is probably that is that they use inference in a social context. Uh, this has been proved for chickens, for instance. Imagine the situation. They have a pecking order. So when a society is established, every everyone knows its own position in the social rank. Okay? Now imagine that a stranger chicken is coming in into the group. How do you establish the novel ordering, the position of this novel chicken? Well, there are two possibilities. One is the brute force, so to speak, the not smart strategy. The new chick is uh, fighting with every one of the other, and it establishes on the basis of winning or losing what is its position. But there is another possibility that makes use of transitive inference. Namely, imagine that you are a chicken of a middle rank and you can look at the fighting between the novel arrive and the alpha guy in the, in the pout. And you can observe that the new arrive, the new, the stranger chicken is winning, is uh, uh, capable of winning the, the, the competition, the agonistic behavior with the alpha. Then at this point, you do not have to decide what to do with the, with the stranger. We don't need to, to, to fight with it. You can uh, recover inferentially that it is stronger than you because it has been proved to be stronger than the alpha. The alpha is stronger than you then the novel chicken is stronger than you. This is inference. And chickens are able to do that, both in the lab and in naturalistic conditions. So recently, with a couple of colleagues, we investigated whether this ability, which is observed also in very, very young chicks, uh, is different in males and females 
And also, if it is different, depending on the social ranks of animals. And what we found was quite interesting, even with respect to stereotypic issue about this uh, sort of things. The first thing is that females are in general uh, better than males, uh, in this species at least. And this is not surprising because obviously the formation of social ranks is mainly in a natural condition, uh, 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 an affair, uh, 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 a duty for females. Females show a pecking order and, and strong affiliation, whereas typically, because they are a, a, a polygenic species in which there is a male controlling the group of females, males do not have any need to be clever from the social point of view. Uh, they are simply very aggressive and agonistic versus other males. Uh, and the other surprise concern social rank uh, in that we found that, again, particularly in females, uh, individuals of the lower ranking orders were particularly brilliant. Why? Well, because they need to know about social ranks and to estimate and make inferences about the risk of fighting with another individuals. Whereas individuals of higher social ranks do not have to care about this. So I found this interesting because in a way is a sort of lesson uh, to against to, to consider the issue of uh, uh, intelligence, its distribution, and its characteristics associated with uh, gender and social rank in a, in a novel and non-stereotype non way. So what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Well, I'm currently mostly working with another model right now, which is zebrafish, and uh, I'm still investigating number cognition and we are using zebrafish. Zebrafish is a model which is uh, largely using uh, molecular biology and developmental biology because they offer terrific advantages to the uh, molecular and genetic investigation of behavior. So we are studying the ability for number cognition and the uh, long-term uh, interest is to try to identify the genetic mechanisms of uh, numerosity and number cognition. That's quite important, again, even from a practical point of view. There are developmental disorders like dyscalculia, for instance, uh, that affect a, a certain number of, of infants and children that have extreme difficulty, which is typically diagnosed at school, to deal with numbers and, in general, with quantities that seems to have at least the developmental dyscalculia, a genetic basis. There are some candidate genes which has been identified. So we are working with a group at Queen Mary University, uh, Caroline Brennan and a colleague in Los Angeles, Scott Fraser, uh, to develop uh, transgenic lines of zebrafish in which some of these genes are silenced or changed in some way and we tested them for their ability to deal with uh, with number so 
So this is main current interest. Oh, sounds fascinating. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Oh, ah, yes, sorry, sorry. Well, yes, the book is published by MIT Press and distributed by Penguin. So it is easily available both in the in the in the libraries in the bookshop and uh, uh, easily uh, uh, on, on online. Uh, well, Amazon and all, all the traditional um, stuff. Um, the activity of my work is uh, uh, available as well as the um, the specific. Uh, academic publications, the papers, uh, in the website of my lab, uh, and that is easily uh, easy easy to uh, to uh, to obtain it by looking just to my name on the on the web, and uh, uh, you will find also uh, the the address of of the laboratory. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and it has been truly illuminating discussion. Thank you. It has been a great pleasure to talk with you, and thank you to all the audience.